Welcome to episode 7 of MADE, the podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're going to discuss if analog design is dying. Let's continue the conversation. Welcome back everyone to MADE, um, the show about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. As always with me, I have Ray Pena. How you doing? Claudia Berrigan. Hello. And I am Jose Valcarso. Well, guys, we're back for another episode. Yeah. Um, I think it's oh. a good topic. We have some good news stories today. They all, all sort of kind of tie in a little bit. Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah. And um, <clears throat> I think we have a good show today. So, um, But before we get to that, I mean, how's everybody been doing? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. I know we're getting ready for a move. We've been living at this apartment for 10 years, so moving to another place is just scary. There's things that I haven't touched in probably eight years. Yes. Well, now's the time to get rid of it. Yeah, that's true. I know I know. Claudia's going to try to get rid of it. Okay, she's <laughs> yes, already exactly. trying to get rid of stuff. Yeah. We've um, had plenty of discussions about that, and there'll be a yeah. lot of uh, yard... You gave us a great, uh, a great idea of yard sales, right? Which is a good thing. I like that idea of yard sales and purging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys have been to some of my yard sales. Yeah, we've been to your yard sales. Mm-hmm. And you know, we are big about reusing stuff. Like, I hate to throw stuff away. Oh, Just yeah. like I hate when people throw stuff away. We, we, I'd rather reuse it. We go to a lot of state sales because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even if you don't uh, sell at a yard sale, you can always give it away. Yeah, yeah that's true. I already have somebody interested in one of our things. So. Oh, cool. And, uh, and the good thing is we're going to have more space so I can work on a few more projects as well. I think we're going to have... We, we're going to have an office and sort of like a little workshop area. So that'll oh, be that'll good. be nice. Yeah. And a yard. Yeah. And a yard, yeah. So we're going to have grounds. Yeah, and in <laughs> D.C. that's rare. Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. And our dog is going to enjoy the yard. I don't even know where he went. He's over there sleeping. All right, well, good, good. So let's get right to the news then, right? Yeah. Before we get started? Sure thing. new story has to do a little bit with architecture but uh, Ray you have found this. this is a video which is that the video is really cool people should watch this video uh, that we're going to link into yeah I'm sure you put that link in there and I also uh, included another link to the website uh, that is basically for the uh, there's a film that was that was done documenting the efforts of uh, this sculptor his name is Rob Paulette and the uh, the producer and director followed him for three years during this uh, the course of his work and he made a documentary about it uh, so there will be a link to that if anyone's interested um, yeah. it's not available uh, in any way except I think in a digital format you have to buy it I think it's $12 uh, but uh, again we don't we're, I'm not we're not tied to them in any way I just thought it was interesting you know mm-hmm. so basically what Rob Paulette has done is created uh, artwork in the in the undergrounds of uh, of uh, New Mexico, and basically he's been carving the sandstone in New Mexico into these beautiful, elaborate caves. Uh, it's it's quite interesting because it's the opposite process of how we build things today. Everything we build is additive. You know, we take wood and, and stone and block, you know, concrete and uh, block, bricks, and we we build things up. And what he's done is he's gone underground and he's carved away spaces. 
And um, it's, uh, it's interesting because I, I can remember uh, our, our former professor, uh, Dr. Magyar, talking about carving spaces architecturally. And this gentleman who has no training in architecture or, or art ha is doing exactly that, but in a very literal manner, carving away the sandstone into beautiful works of art. And he's, uh, he's basically doing it for hire. Mm -hmm. uh, the people are, are paying him $12 an hour to carve these beautiful spaces. He's, uh, yeah, that, that was the part that was astonishing to me, that he's doing it for $12 an hour. Yeah. Because the work that he's doing is just, I mean... It, well, if this were anywhere else, he'd be making $1,000 an hour. Right. But uh, it's interesting because I'm not sure if he's retired or not. He's of that age. I think he's mm -hmm. in his uh, late 60s. Uh, but this is really entertainment for him. He's got this creative urge to build things with his hands. And by the way, he uses no power tools. You know, pick, a shovel, a trowel, a, um, a, a chisel, everything he does. And he carves thousands of square feet um, of, of space, all completely by hand. He's got this creative urge that can only be satisfied by carving the sandstone. And it is quite amazing. And it's all improvised as well. So, yeah, I did a little, uh, as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is really cool, the design aspect of it. He doesn't do it alone. He does it with his dog yes. <laughs> at his side, which is cool. I like, that's it, right? Just his dog. He does not want anybody else in there. But I, I was really intrigued about him, so I did a little digging um, just to find out a little more about him. And I I learned that he um, he's, like, he just developed this unusual profession because he, like you said, Ray, he doesn't have any artistic background or architectural background or anything else or builder or anything he was actually a drifter and he had um like he was a college dropout and he was even discharged from the u.s navy mm -hmm. and for a while he hitchhiked across america just working odd jobs like every single job that you can think of um and then he started doing th this work like in a public land which is i think the only issue i have with this particular thing because yeah. It, it, it is, um, I have a, because I'm an environmentalist of the way, uh, you know, public land is very few right now. Like we have mm -hmm. to protect it. There aren't, there aren't that many. And there's, it's, there's so many people just owning public land. And while you're doing great things in this artwork in them, I think it's great. The fact that after he started doing this um, work in public land, he started um, getting commission work. And even the commission work, he had some difficulty apparently with that because, you know, commission work, like, and Ray can talk to this because, um, you know, you have someone asking you how how they want it to, how they want their design or your your process to look like or what the end result to look like. And if you're if you're artistically inclined, you really don't want someone to tell you what to do mm -hmm. or how Correct. to do it yeah. and what it to look like. And he had problems with that. So he actually turned down a lot of people. Um, and got into fights with some people, but mm -hmm. later on he started continuing, you know, to do this. Mm -hmm. And like, what I found is that, you know, like one of the properties in Santa Fe or, Ta or Taos, I think, um, it's a 208 acre property was purchased. One of his final, uh, designs was purchased for $995,000. Yes. Which and, is and by the way, he gets none of that. Right. Because, uh, somebody owns that and it wasn't him. He was just commissioned to do it. Yeah, and see that, and that's where the ownership point come comes into. That's where the only issue I have, whether it's in public land or if it's owned by someone, and you know, it's it's land that sh maybe should be owned by someone. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. ah, but great work. 
Oh, yes, yeah, beautiful. No, no, it's beautiful work. It's very reminiscent to me of Gaudi's work from Barcelona. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, I saw uh, there were a lot of similarities from what we saw when we were there, and it's just it's a beautiful work. Um, I think I have a similar issue with you. Like, you know, this property that sells for almost a million dollars, he gets nothing of it. It's very reminiscent of Banksy, who does his work, and people end up taking it and selling it for millions of dollars, and he gets nothing of it. Um, yeah, but you know what? It's interesting because if, if he doesn't care, because he clearly could care less about the money, uh, I think whatever he's charging is simply for subsistence. Um, he, you know, he has this urge that needs to be let out, and the money, I don't think, uh, matters to him. It's, it's interesting that it doesn't matter to him, uh, and for whatever yeah, reason. See, to me, that comes off of that he's being used to a degree and not caring about it. That, I think that's where I have issue with it, and, and I feel for him in that sense. Like, he doesn't realize how much what he's doing is adding value to somebody else, and somebody else ends up reaping the benefit of what he's done. Uh, so you think he's he's getting ripped off but doesn't know it? Right. Not sophisticated enough to realize. maybe he doesn't care, realize. you yeah. know, and maybe he just doesn't care, but he's getting ripped off. Yeah, oh, somebody yeah, Somebody else is benefiting way too much out of it. Well, that land is desert. I mean, it's, it wasn't yeah. worth anything, and he put all this effort years of effort yeah. and then it's worth a million dollars yeah but the work absolutely beautiful the pictures are definitely worth yeah. i mean I, I recommend all of our listeners to go yeah. and look at the pictures that we're yeah, and, the, and the video yeah in the yeah. video yeah. yeah yeah and i found this quite by accident i'm not even sure if, uh somebody sent me a link or if i i'm not exactly sure how i found this but when i saw it, i'm like you know what this has got to be something we cover yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it's a good find Cool, all right, let's move on to the next story. The next story is called uh, Hostile City. Um, I think you also added, I think you added all three of the stories this have. week, right? I was on a roll. And I These just are great. Yeah, yeah, good stories. Go ahead, go, 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 tell us a little bit about the Hostile City one. I think this is one that's going to have a little bit of discussion to it. Yeah, and you know what? Um, because, Cara, you have the, the urban planner background. I really wanted to see what you thought about this before, before I said it. No, I definitely like I like the the premise of this article. It's a, it talks about defensive design, um, the different types of um, uh, you would say like design features that the designers and not just designers but also um, public uh, entities, you know, facilities. It could be universities. It could be private, public. It doesn't really matter. Will put on. Um, throughout the city to make things harder for people to uh, enjoy or use specific features. And I'll give you some examples. Um, some of the examples that I that I was looking at is like anti-skater design, mm-hmm. right? Um, the skaters are always a nuisance, are seen as a nuisance. So, you, you know, you, you put these little metal strips down um, pavers or specific areas that you don't want them to, to go and skate around. And then you're basically telling youth not to be there mm-hmm. and um and that that then you wonder why why do we have you know crime high crime rates of youth because you know they can't do certain things um other areas are like homeless um in benches right you'll end up seeing benches that have metal um attachments on them on the along the the platform so that homeless won't be able to lay down on them mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have security, all the you know, all the gates and the different um, uh, metal 
uh, or spikes that you would put on top of gates mm -hmm. just to prevent people from going. And, you know, their their death security is a really big issue in cities, specifically in high crime cities, not just here in the United States, but across. I mean, I traveled through Honduras and I did not see kids walking outside. And mm -hmm. it was basically a walled city. It is one of the highest um, capital uh, crime capitals of the world. And, yeah, it is pretty, pretty bad. Um, and you vacation there? No, I went for actually went oh, there right. for a project, no, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and why would you go there? Why would I go there? That was the only reason why I would go there. Um, although it's a beautiful country, I mean, like you know what 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 you see after you cross those gates is amazing. Mm -hmm. Then you see the kids. Then you start seeing all the all the fruit trees and you know great houses and everything else. But you know, from the from walking on the streets, you don't see that. So it is this hostile city it's, it becomes a fortress of a city and mm -hmm. you see it constantly so i have other things to say about it um other ways how um people have architects and designers have decided to combat this host hostile um design and you know one of them is tactile uh, architecture or tactile urbanism the other one is putting art mm -hmm. using art as a, as a way of combining um or, or making things warmer in a way, but I don't agree with neither of those two ways of doing it. I know it's weird oh, okay. because so you, you hadn't mentioned that, like, because I was wondering, you, you mentioned all the ways that this happens, but how do you feel about it as 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 a practice? I think it, I definitely think that it's it's not good um, for 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 specific specifically for public spaces. Mm -hmm. I think you can't you can only control public spaces. Private spaces here in the United States you cannot control, right? You have your own rights. Uh, um, so you really can't do that. But for public spaces you should not be able to do that because you're basically telling people um, what where they can be and where they cannot be. And mm -hmm. then you give people a false sense of ownership of the public realm. And that's wrong. From a policy perspective, from an architectural perspective, from an ethics perspective, is just wrong. Um, and then, but that's the thing that you know the the counter for that is to create this tactile urbanism or tactile spaces, taking over parking spaces, for example, and making them you know these really funky, hip little areas where you have this artistic uses and you put art and you know you can grab chalk and draw and everything else, but you're still taking um making this your own space and you're telling people not to participate in it mm -hmm. um not it's not for all equity right. is not part of this so even the solution is not equitable right. so yeah hmm. yeah but it, you know that's kind of interesting um, because uh you know they're they were talking specifically about and you kind of touched on this the exclusion of certain groups of people Right. Um, and I like how you bring up the skaters because I think everybody, uh, wherever you've lived or if you've ever been to a, a city anywhere, I think everyone has seen some of those metal cleats that they put on, on uh, especially concrete um, benches or knee walls to prevent skaters from grinding uh, on the wall. Right. Uh, and it's interesting because when I see those cleats, I don't think about uh, that as being excluding the youth and their skateboards. Because they can still ride their skateboards, what it says is, "Don't damage my wall by grinding your skateboard." <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, uh, because really, uh, when they grind there uh, over and over and over, they actually deteriorate the wall and they damage the wall. Yeah. So to me, uh, it it doesn't say, "Oh, we are excluding you skaters." We because regular people aren't, you know, 
everybody else doesn't walk there and smack it with a hammer or you know do some kind of destructive activity um, and it really is only excluding destructive activity by putting those cleats now on, on the same hand where as you were talking about they make these uh, benches comfortable to an extent if you are only using them temporarily but extremely uncomfortable if you want to lay down on there for hours so those kinds of um, uh, design approaches that are deliberately targeted against homelessness to prevent them from laying there. Um, yeah, I, I'm not, you know, I'm kind of mixed about the whole thing. Those people, people who are homeless don't want to be homeless. They just happen right. to be that way. And what you're saying by putting this here is we don't want you here. Um, but, you know, is it driven only by the, the uh, people making the decisions, the, the lawmakers, or have they been um, have they been asked to take some kind of stance because the people that live there don't want it? It's a very complicated issue, and I think it's interesting because there's a lot of things that that, that you and I and a lot of a lot of people who are not directly involved don't even notice. They don't even notice these subtle design uh, 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 features that are specifically there to exclude a group of people. And one of the ones that I thought was interesting was the blue lights in public bathrooms. It didn't even occur to me. I've seen them, but it didn't even occur to me that the function of that blue light was to prevent junkies from uh, shooting up and you know seeing their veins and shooting drugs in their, in their veins. And I will find it difficult for anybody to, um, to <laughs> defend the intravenous drug user in this regard. I think everybody say, well, yeah, we, it's a public bathroom. Kids are going in there. We don't want drug drug addicts in there mm -hmm. so it's interesting that we can all kind of agree on which groups of people we want to exclude and which design practices that we are okay with and and find offense in some of the other ones like the the homeless spikes they put those spikes in the alcove so they can't sleep there you know th those are specifically targeting a pe group of people who don't want to be that way but they don't have a choice mm -hmm. yeah i mean it, I think to me it's a fine line, right? Yeah. Um, because I remember the first time I heard about this sort of defensible design features in a building, and I look at it from the building standpoint because that's what I do, um, it was, I think it was not long after the Oklahoma City bombing, and almost every courthouse and a lot of, uh, sort of civil buildings started putting some kind of barrier to keep cars from being able to get that close to the building. Yes. You know, and a lot of them started doing it with, with bollards, some of them that were trying to be more sensitive put these sort of massive planners in front of it. And at that time, it sort of made sense to me, right? Like, okay, yeah, you're trying to defend the building from an attack. But I mean, I think this is taking it another level because kids and homeless are not trying to attack the building. They're not trying to hurt anybody there. You know, they're just trying to sort of live in this world the best way they can. Mm -hmm. A kid's grinding on the wall, not because... He's trying to damage the building, but because he has nowhere else to go do this, they yeah. haven't been provided somewhere to go be able to use their skateboard the proper way. Um, so I, I think I stand more on the side of like certain things you just have to live with. <laughs> and if you have to replace a railing, you know, every 10 years, four, every you know, even less than that, every four years because kids are using it that way. You know, at least they find your building attractive enough to be around it and, and want to be there, you know? Like, I've always had an issue with 
with yeah. when people have a problem with people being in front of their building or in their neighborhood or in their yeah. vicinity of their facilities because it's like there's something about your particular shop or store or business that's attracting people there and that's good you know yeah. um that's really cool yeah, yeah. so but, I, yeah so i have an issue with that i think the other point i was trying to make and i can't remember so go ahead ray i'll think of the other point yeah well what's interesting is that they use some examples uh mm -hmm. to uh they had one example in particular that they started the story with was the the uh, spikes um right. along the, the fence line i mean these are enormous spikes Right. That uh, you look at that and you're like, what? What is going on here? Why would you need that? What? Yeah. And uh, it was in a, uh, it was in, a, in an effort to defend themselves against a planned slave revolt in 1822. <laughs> so this kind of thing has been going on for in this country for at least 200 years. Right. So it's something that's been going on for a very long time, and it's interesting because some of these things, when you see them, um, you can be appalled. Uh, in my, I'm particularly appalled when, when they are deliberately attacking one group of people, like homeless people, who don't have a choice. Um, uh, you know, it's not their fault. Uh, as far as the skaters are concerned, that's a different story for me. But, but uh, it, it's something that's been going on for, in this country for at least 200 years, and I'm sure it's been going on in Europe much longer than that. Uh, but uh, doesn't seem to have a, a a satisfying resolution. We've had a long time to think about it, and still it doesn't seem like we've been able to, to pinpoint the solution that is equitable to all parties yeah no i mean i see where you're i see where you're coming from i i just i'm more on the side of like you know people are going to use the building the way they're going to use the building and i remember the other thing i was thinking about is when i see this thing it makes me angry when people talk about brutalist architecture as being uninviting mm -hmm. and yeah. because i personally love brutalist architecture i think there's yes. a sort of refinement to it and when it's done well it's great and yet people always look at a brutalist building and, and are like well i don't want to be near that building like i don't want to be near this stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know i don't want to be sitting yeah. on a bench that's uncomfortable most benches are uncomfortable no matter what but still yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. one one last thought on this, mm -hmm. and it, it goes with what Jose was just mentioning about brutalist architecture, which is all concrete architecture, right? This really mm -hmm. heavy building filled with concrete. There are unintended consequences with uh, hostile architecture um, because you know there's a whole idea of security, right? And lighting makes a big difference, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to light. The more light that you have, then the less, the more secure your building is, mm -hmm. right? So now if you don't have a brutalist building, you have a building and a lot of these federal buildings are have these atriums that are glass atriums and at mm -hmm. night they fill them up with glass, with, mm -hmm. with light so that, you know, there are no intruder, intruders coming in and it's a great building anyway, so it's great. The unintended consequences of that is animals. So mm -hmm. the birds go and um, collide with this glass because they, they see light and they are completely drawn to it. And mm -hmm. then in the morning you see, you know, tens, 20, 20 birds all, all over the floor that have died mm -hmm. um, through this. And, and that's a really big issue. Uh, so the unintended consequences of um, hostile architecture for the animal kingdom mm -hmm. are huge and they have no say. And we, they, you know, they have no say whatsoever, mm. and we we constantly think of this and you know this Anthropocene that we live in, that where humans are more important. Mm. How? What about the yeah. unintended, consequences, mm. unintended consequences to nature? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So let's go on to the next story then. Uh, the next story is called "Why Handmade Matters." 
Again, another one you added, right? When you tell us a little bit about this one. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting... Five points, right? Yeah, it's an interesting article that, that basically covers... Uh, it basically asks the question or, or makes the statement and then gives you five reasons. Uh, and uh, they're all interesting reasons and, uh, you know, they all speak to me. And I think we've actually kind of hit all these reasons in, uh, in our previous podcasts. Uh, and the one that particularly, uh, previous episodes, one in particular that comes to mm -hmm. mind is the, I think we covered a lot of these things in, uh, in the Ikea effect. Um, but, uh, but, you know, obviously I, uh, I, right. I make a lot of stuff, you know, <laughs> and to me, there's this, uh, it's an interesting mm -hmm. kind of situation where, uh, with so many things that are mass produced, you would think that, uh, that you don't see anything that's handmade, but it's the exact opposite. People are making stuff all the time and people who don't make things or can't make things have an appreciation for, for handmade and they look for them and, and they can identify the difference between things that are handmade and not handmade. So uh, whether you are initiated into that mm -hmm. club of being a maker uh, is kind of irrelevant because you can see the value and you find it more interesting and you find it more valuable. And uh, uh, it kind of speaks to that innate nature that we all have that we appreciate things that are handmade as opposed to mass produced. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think when you see all of these points here, um, I think one of the main ones is that the handmade item cannot be duplicated. Not necessarily true all, all, all the time, um, yeah. but I think that is a big part of what the why the, the handmade matters so much, you know, because it has, it carries that with it. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think what they and, meant is exactly. Yeah, I mean, all five of these points are great. Yeah, so all of these are four, four, um, five points of why it matters, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, really, how does it matter to you guys? Yeah, because that's the last question, right? Why do you why do you think hand handmade matters? Yes, that's where it ends. Right? It. Yeah, that's where <laughs> it ends. It like you know what else can you add to this? I just uh, I really like this because I like I mentioned before I think it was up in last week's podcast um, being able to knit. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's one of those things because you can use use what you're what, what you're doing, you know, you making yourself a hat, a glove, a scarf uh, and it's handmade and it's unique. Mm -hmm. I think the uniqueness of like a limited creating a limited edition of something is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, the, that's to me why it matters. It empowers the maker into creating something that's unique and uh, to themselves. And it, also people who make stuff make stuff with you know with their hands they're not usually um trend followers they're trendsetters mm -hmm. right and I, I like that idea of like being a trendsetter as opposed to just you know like buying something that oh it's trendy so therefore i'll continue buying it um and you know not to say that the people who buy stuff that is handmade are, aren't you know helping the process because they are mm -hmm. again they're buying it because it's unique and it's a limited edition and finally i think that um Customi customizing something to your needs, I think, is really cool, mm -hmm. and that's the that's the fact of hand making it, right? Because you have the you learn from your failures, you learn learn from the process. You can remake it, right? If you failed, you just try it again and do mm -hmm. it again, and um, so you miss out on those on all of those things when you buy it, right. <laughs> when you when it's produced when it's mass produced by a machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and see, I think I agree with all the points you've made, and I think the one I would add to it, I think part of it to me is, and it's something I'm going to talk about in the, in the main topics, there's nostalgia to it, you know? 
um, that mm-hmm. yeah. you don't you don't have that anymore. You know, I, I it'd be interesting to grown up in you know I don't know the 1800s where everything was handmade, and because everything was handmade, maybe we didn't have that value that we have on it now, where everything is mass produced and everything has the same thing. Yeah. You know, and there are certain there are certain industries where the especially made for you still matters. Like you can go to McDonald's and you can get the same. I almost said Whopper, but I think it's not. It's a Big Mac or whatever that you can get here. You can get it in Kansas. You can get it in China, but you can go to a restaurant and you can get a specialized meal that somebody has cooked specifically for you. And I think that's what this is in making. It's the specialized thing that somebody's making for you, even if you don't make it yourself. The fact that somebody's making this specifically for you, or they're making, you know, three of them, four of them, whatever it might be, it was made in this way, like it's specialized. You're not going to go find it in China, like dozens of them, yeah. or you shouldn't, you know? Yeah. So I think that's the connection for me. For me. Yeah. Well, very interesting. I mean, uh, yeah. cool. really like it. Yeah, I like it. I think it's a, a good article. I think everybody should strive to do all of these things in their work, actually, all five of this. Yeah, and, and if not, you know, like, go into Etsy, because Etsy has become the, the, you know, the mecca of, you know, hand-making stuff and, you know, being able to mm. to buy stuff from yeah. somewhere else. Number five is a little corny for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything is more five? beautiful when it's made with heart, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I agree, I agree. It's a, I got a little corny. Um I've made this joke before, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like the joke of somebody says, oh, you know why that, that meal tastes so good? It's because I made it, I make it with, the secret ingredient is love. Like, I just wish the secret ingredient was hate one of those things. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, this, you yeah like that's that called arsenic. I, I used, I yelled at it, and I, 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 I hated the whole process of it, and you like the meal, though, because the secret ingredient is hate. It's fiery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I like the article. Number five gets a little corny, but yeah. Well, it's funny. Uh, I used to tell my wife that whenever she made cookies or anything, mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? These cookies are made with 10% more love than the next leading brand. <laughs> 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 uh, but my wife makes great cookies. Uh, she's pretty cool. So I used to joke yeah, like that. She before. is. Cool. All right. Well, good. That's cool. a good article. And yeah. So, yeah, we're going to move on to the main topic now. So let's go there. All right, well, let's get to our main topic now. And uh, this week's topic, I, I sort of followed it up from the conversation we had either last week or the week before that when we were talking about the the notebook by Moldskin, right? And we get talk, we get into pretty uh, in depth discussion about sketching and how much we sketch. And I know you guys sort of were on the side of you wouldn't use that product because you don't sketch as much. And that got me thinking about this idea of we're all still in very much in the design field. But it seems like the way people design is changing a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I linked to him two articles here. One of them is uh, an opinion piece that Michael Graves had done a while back. So in that Michael Graves article, or that opinion piece that Michael Graves wrote, he talks about how sketching is even out of his own firm has been coming has has been coming out of the design process. So I thought we could talk about how each of us one deals with that, but also talk about whether we see sort of the analog part of design going away. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you go, what, what do you guys want to start with it? Um, like I, I had said last week, in my firm, currently we do a lot of sketching, and a lot of sketching with the clients, um, with something that I hadn't been doing a lot of in the, uh, in my other, from my previous firms. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so sketching to me is still very much a part of it. And other people that I've worked with, I was working with a furniture designer who, who did all his drawings by hand, as well as when he was testing his furniture design, he was building it and changing things as he was building it. So it was very much analog driven. You know, he even would push back when I told him, oh, why don't you use a, a 3D printer to, to start seeing how these things come together? And his thought was always like, well, no, because that's not how my pieces are. My pieces are made out of solid wood and they're made a certain way. So his design process was very much analog driven. Mm -hmm. um, well, how do you, how do you in, see it, right? Yeah, in my uh, experience, uh, you know, when I was working in the architectural field, uh, I often sketched in front of a, a client, but um, you know these were commercial clients. And what I what I found interesting about the article about the lost art of the drawing is the art part of the drawing. Uh, the clients don't really care about the art, you know. They, to them, is they only have two concerns, and one is uh, the end product and uh, how fast are you going to do it. So, you know, uh, for us and, and for me in particular, the the drawing was a temporary quick means of communicating and the actual uh, end result was more more important and even today uh in the manufacturing industry where i am now uh we i use sketch all in fact i sketch all the time every day on a daily basis and a lot of that sketching is three-dimensional sketching um, because of my experience in the architectural field i can go on the floor and quickly uh, explain something to someone just drawing it three-dimensionally when they only have two-dimensional drawings in front of them. Sometimes they don't, the, the drawing can be complicated and they don't understand them uh, so, so easily. So a three-dimensional sketch immediately communicates. And so once that communication is solved, uh, the, the sketch becomes uh, pointless after that. So that's why, uh, and I think I mentioned that last time, for me, in my, in my practice, uh, sketches are are temporary. They're disposable. They're they're just a means by which to transfer information, and then it's done. The, so the you sketch don't, you don't hang on to them at all. I I I have not hung on to a sketch in mm -hmm. five years, seven years, something like that. And I, I see, sketch on a daily basis. I see, even at my old office, even though we weren't doing necessarily the sketches for the sake of there being these beautiful drawings all the time, oftentimes we ended up liking them to the point where we would hang them up on the wall and we just sort of decorate the office with the sketches more than we would with the finished drawings. You know? Um, and we weren't necessarily purposefully trying to make beautiful drawings. Um, what about you, Claudia? I mean, how do you feel about this so far? Yeah, well, um, last week one of the things that I mentioned was that uh, I, because I do urban planning, we, I, often use diagramming more than sketching. So I do more diagrams, either process diagrams or um, community planning diagrams, very like schematic plans, mm -hmm. right? So larger scale drawings or sketches. Um, and then when I started school, uh, pursuing a master's in environmental policy, it's all about, it was all about writing papers. Mm -hmm. And I found myself outlining my papers by hand, by hand. And, mm. and with same thing with tra with trace paper opening it up grabbing a big marker and just diagramming my outlines and it's it's just a way that my my brain functioned mm -hmm. um, when I was in school and therefore in, in architecture school and therefore I continue that same process and I think it helped me a lot and um whenever I was working on on teams with other students I would tend I tend to do the same thing you know I gravitate towards the the whiteboard and I'll grab mm -hmm. uh, a marker and just start drawing 
So, I mean, it's still very much a sense of you, the, the analog part is still very present. It's just maybe not done in a presentation way that you could show somebody else either. Is what yeah, saying. it's more about the right. process. Yeah, and I mean, I find that we've, and my architecture firm, we've sort of gone away from the physical model it used to be not so much as a representation thing, but it used to be a exploratory part of it. You know, and a lot of these physical models end up turning very nice and you could sort of, we would decorate the office with them. And that's all sort of going away for the sake of the computer. You know, um, I, I guess there's a part of me, and maybe it's just me that likes the analog part of it. Because even in my photography, you know, I have you, you've seen I have tons of film cameras that I still use. I've got even um, Polaroids that I do on the film. It's crazy expensive for the Polaroid cameras, but I still, there's something I like about that, you know? Mm -hmm. I've even gotten a camera, a Polaroid camera, that's a digital camera, but still spits out little Polaroids, Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so there's something, maybe there's just something in me that I like the analog part of it. Well, I, uh, I think that uh, you, you know, the three of us in architecture school, uh, you know, we all had the same experience. We actually were not allowed to use the computer for any uh, presentations uh, for the first three or four years. I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. Everything had to be hand drawn. And uh, this, uh, the article kind of touches on that uh, particular mechanism of the, uh, the hand and the eye and the mind being connected. And what I, what I like is when he describes uh, the different types of drawings, uh, in particular, uh, when he's referring to the, uh, you know, the first sketch, the referential sketch, as uh, basically experiments on paper. You know, you're mm -hmm. experimenting, which uh, is very simple and easy to do with your hand. Uh, you know, you have two points, and you can connect those two points in an infinite number of ways. Mm -hmm. When you go to the computer, the computer wants to connect those two points with the shortest possible distance, uh, which is a straight line. So you... And if, if you're making a straight line, it's very easy to do on the computer. You have to kind of go out of your way to make it do anything but a straight line. <laughs> Whereas on paper, with a pencil or a, or a pen, when you're sketching, you can do those experiments. You can do those tests. And, and you probably have had the same experience when you're sketching. Sometimes you'll sketch a line, and then you'll sketch another line above it or below it. And you put two or three lines until you find one that actually is what you like or what you were looking for. So in a matter of a fraction of a second, you can really put those experiments down very quickly. Uh, so, uh, which the computer cannot do. You cannot do it so fast on the mm -hmm. computer. And you cannot be connected with your hand and your, and your eye and your mind to explore all of those infinite possibilities as, as easily on the computer. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, I guess the struggle is still, for me, maintaining as much of this analog part of it as possible even though i go so much to the computer as it is i mean one thing i would say that in what i find i'm kind of going to give some industry secrets i guess <laughs> here um so i worked for large firms and i worked on um, master planning and, and the planning studios so really quickly after a quick sketch we would go into doing 3D models, mm -hmm. right, and SketchUp, and you just quickly just start doing plans, and even in, in AutoCAD, it just put multiple alternatives and different plans, and I remember um, I often went 
right ahead into doing CAD work because you could get a lot of data out of that, right? Because we constantly, I mean, our clients are looking for like square footages or looking at what the entire development, square footage of that, uh, of that development is and the impact um, so they can take it to their finance guys and everything else. Um, what was really interesting though is that when it came down to presenting this to the community, my bosses would always tell me, okay, now grab that, that plan that you did and sketch over it because we don't want to show something that looks hard finished line. hard line yeah uh, we want to make them believe that we've been sketching this mm-hmm. and you know there was just a little bit ethical issues that i had with that but at the same time it's the process right that's the process that in architectural firms that we we go through and um i find that interesting it's just because while you know we spend so much time in architecture school really focusing on the beauty and the need of drawing and sketching when you're actually doing the work uh that's not necessarily the case and when when the need is to do to sell a vision mm-hmm. to your client um whoever that stakeholder or client is then you want to do a, a you want to show a beautiful rendering that you know like a lot of the times it comes from china and stuff so know, it's, I mean, it's interesting yeah no, and i get what you're saying but so what's changed though because that part of it what you just talked about that you know it's about showing the the stakeholder what they need to see hasn't changed you know that part's the same from you know 30 years ago but yet we're not doing this hand drawings that we were doing then so what's changed why are the drawings not why are we not as concerned about making these beautiful drawings that even if they're just for ourselves, why are we not doing this at the time? I, I um, you know, is it the billing? Is it the economy? What, 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 what really do you guys think has changed? Because I can't put my finger on it. Well, yeah, it's funny you should say that because I, uh, I can only speak from my experience. And for me, the, uh, where the architecture firm where I used to work, and I was there seven, eight years. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how long I was there. Uh, the, uh, the projects would always start with a sketch. And I remember my boss, he was very, um, very open about it. He says, look, the first couple of meetings, we only go in there with a sketch. You never show them. And we could have finished plans ready. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, we, we only go in there with a sketch. And he's and he pointed out something very interesting. He says, you know, the client cannot draw. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he actually quoted uh, Robert Venturi. I think he when he was... In school, he went to a uh, a lecture with Robert Venturi, and and uh, he you know he recalls some of the things that were said there, but he was saying that the client cannot draw, and it's true, our clients can't draw, so a hand drawn sketch is actually more impressive to your client than the finished drawing. The other thing is, if you go in with a finished drawing, even though the drawings could be very close to being completed. Uh, so early in the process, they kind of feel that they they are being um, cornered into <laughs> accepting something you've already finished. So mm-hmm. it, it becomes more concrete, more complete, and there's no room for adjustment. And they like that illusion. And, and they're not even aware of it. They like that illusion that there is still some input they can make and some changes they can make. And so you can go to, to the client in two different meetings. If you just have a sketch, they won't change anything. If you have hard drawings to that same meeting, they'll want to change everything. So I think part of that is uh, the the industry where it is end results driven. You know, the client wants to build a building and they want it now, and you got to move fast. Um, 
but the art of the sketch i think is is something that only us in the industry we might have and because of the push of the clients we might not treat that sketch as beautifully as we once did See, but have the clients pushed it against client push different now than it was you know i remember when i started in architecture i was i was working at a firm while going to school we were still doing a lot of hand drawing at that point you know even though we said we were moving a lot towards cad like finished drawings yeah, we were still doing a lot oh. of hand drawing. We were even doing the the sticky back things. I don't know if you guys ever had those. It was this clear term. That we, we, would, we would type it up and print it and then use that to put notes on drawings. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of cut and pasting even still when I was working in the, the first couple of years. Either um, you are old. Yeah, or, <laughs> exactly. I was going to say. That was a wild bag. <laughs> I am old. That, that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. I am younger than both of you, though. Yes. <laughs> Um, I think a part of it is that it was a firm that was still in transition. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even the designer of that firm who didn't do any CAD, he's, he took care of his of what his drawings looked like. So I don't know that the client, and, and these are projects that were millions of dollars theaters that we were trying to build. I don't know that the client push has changed. I think it's something in us that has changed that we don't care as much about those drawings. You know, well, what I find interesting, because I, I also had the wonderful opportunity to work with landscape architects, mm-hmm. and, um, and they, do, they deal with color. Right. And that was, to me, like, working in, in a landscape architecture firm was, was, was the most colorful time that I, you know, I was getting paid to color, mm-hmm. to color within the lines, which was really cool. Um, and they tend to, landscape architects, they tend to be even more in tune with nature because mm-hmm. of what they have to do. So I think that it's more expected even out of them to really pick up and be more artistic about their drawings and, and be more flexible with their drawings too. Flexibility makes a big difference in all of this. Um, I, maybe I agree with you. I think it is something that, you know, maybe the architectural professional profession is, is kind of being influenced. But is it just the architecture professional? Because I feel like even what you're doing, right, you can go back and look at older blueprint drawings that were drawn by hand. They were beautiful blueprint drawings for a machine, whereas it's which not... Which we have. Right, which, but th- that's not really the way we look at them anymore. We look at them as a thing to just sort of get it built, right? Yeah. The main purpose yeah. is the build. Yeah, I still get, um, on a daily basis, I get drawings that were, that were drawn in the 30s. Mm-hmm. There were hand drawings in the 30s. And they are in absolute terrible shape. I need to scan them in and, and clean them up because you can't even read them. Um, and then a lot of times I will redraw them in AutoCAD for our own internal purposes because I cannot have any of the guys misinterpreting the drawing. Mm-hmm. Because it is a hand drawing, I mean, the lettering is all, all of it, 100% hand drawn for gears or different uh, shafts or mechanisms. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Geneva gear. Mm-hmm. It's a you know an interesting gear, and the the, the uh, machining has to be precise. So uh, you know we still have those drawings, and for use on the floor, I always have to re redraw them mm-hmm. to make sure that there is no confusion. Right. But but they are beautiful drawings. You know I look at them and uh, and I have one. Next time you come over, I'll show you it from the I think it's 1959. It's an exploded exonometric of a steam valve, mm-hmm. and it's got all these interesting. I mean, they really went out of their way to draw this by hand. Uh, in fact, I think you saw the valves last time you were there. Yeah, I think so. I think I remember seeing. I don't remember that. Well, yeah, I mean, well, and and again, I guess here's the other, the, the second half of this is, 
you know, because the other article that I linked to here was, you know, about talking about the architectural monograph, right? Which is uh, these yes. books that really are a display of an architect's work. Um, and I remember a lot of the ones I used to buy when I was in school had a lot of the hand drawings that, you know, like yes. I remember, if you remember the Calatrava with his watercolors and his hand drawings. And I think with Stephen Hall's drawings were always in his books, yes. right? Yep. But I feel like a lot of, a lot of monographs have now become... Here are the finished photographs and maybe a presentation plan or two. Um, and that's why there's this talk of sort of getting rid of this. I know, you, Claudia, you're all about paper-free, so yeah, your motivation gonna... for the book going away is maybe different than a, lot of, than a lot of other people who just see it as, like, it's an outdated thing. You can go to a website and, and look at whatever photos you want now. Yeah, I was going to say, for, like, for our non-architect listeners or non-designer listeners, um, what's interesting is that we're moving, Jose and I are moving, mm. and I, start, and I, the first thing I wanted to start packing were our books, and Jose and I have a lot of architecture books, and I'm sure Ray does too, because <laughs> yeah, that's what we do, right? <laughs> so, um, and we're actually, the, we're going to be moving to a place where there's a, a, a guy who's an architect also, he's a younger architect, so I can't wait to like, you know, talk to him and see how many books he has, like the new generation, how many books are they having, how mm. many books are they buying? But the whole idea of books, you know, is like it's this coffee, like this monographs. I mean, like, let's define that a little bit more. It's like they're they're a detailed document or study, supposedly of a, or or of a specific subject, right? So mm -hmm. the way that architects use it is to display our our work, our portfolio, right. and it's usually done at, for um, architects that have had a long career. Uh, sometimes that they have passed away and mm -hmm. they have left legacy, right? And then there are this coffee table books. And they're all often in odd shapes. I remember one of the firms, like the one thing that they wanted to do about their um, uh, monographs was to make them a different shape so that they could stand out amongst all the other mm -hmm. ones. So there's this like idea to make them like odd and big and and clunky. You know what um, that reminds me of? Just, just to interrupt uh -huh. you here. Uh, do you remember the Seinfeld episode about the coffee table book? I do, where he, he's doing also, a coffee table book that's also a coffee table. Yeah. That's what that reminds me of. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's it's, it's that idea, but uh, it's honestly, it's just they become a lot. No, to, they do to haul, a lot. and and they become right. a lot too. And nowadays, when you have your portfolio can be online, and your legacy is online, and right. it's and you know this, the particular article talked about an open monograph, and um, just basically a continuum continuum of work that you're doing, which is basically a website to me. Mm -hmm. So you can make this in a PDF or a website and continue to and post on social media and stuff like that. So now you have options. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely odd. have options, but I think there's something nostalgic about holding the book, you know? I yeah. agree. I, you know, I have a library of, of architecture books. I haven't bought an architecture book in some time now, but I periodically I go in there and I'll, I'll pick up a book and I'll go through it. And when I do have it in my hand, I go from an architecture book, I go from one end to the other. Mm -hmm. And you know we're talking about these monogram, uh, architecture monograms. I remember the first one I bought was a Richard Meyer. Uh, I believe uh, it was uh, Five Houses. I think is what it was called. You know the white book, the Richard yeah. Meyer, the white yeah. book. And uh, that was the very first one I bought. Mm -hmm. And what struck me, you know, tying these two uh, articles together, if if the listeners haven't figured it out, we actually just transitioned from one article to the next, mm -hmm. is that in every Richard Meyer book, even today. It uh, doesn't matter if you bought one, you know, 30 yeah. years ago, if you buy one today, every single one of those has a, a hand-drawn, axonometric drawing with mm. each project. Right. Um, yeah. 
And he also uses that as an opportunity to discuss the architectural theory behind each project. So it seems that, uh, you know, he's had a long time to practice uh, the, the whole monogram uh, platform. And uh, he's, I think he's executed so well since he's done it for so long uh, that he really has, has honed into a, a formula for him. And so when you pick up any one of his uh, monograms, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. And you know the, all the projects are different, but the format's the same. So if you're familiar with one of them, you can follow it very simple, very easy, and you understand it, and you understand the projects. But I think it gives him and, and you know the uh, other architects. Uh, I just picked him at random because mm-hmm. uh, he was the first one I bought. Uh, that uh, it gives them an opportunity to revisit that project, and I believe they touched that uh, on, in the article to revisit that project and actually uh, communicate what they were thinking when they when they uh, started that project to uh, you know you and me as the readers right. that uh, if you make a project you put it online you can go and change it afterwards but you may not have that opportunity to revisit it because you know the clock keeps on ticking and so chances are when you put it online you'll forget about it and you go to the next one you go to the next one you go to the next one but that book having it in your hand they they invested time in putting it together mm-hmm. and so and and it comes across when you're reading it uh, when you're looking at the pictures, and, and let's be honest, architectural monograms are mostly pictures. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Not a whole lot drawings. to read in there. Right. Yeah. They're mostly pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it yeah. communicates to us as the readers. Yeah, and it's funny because your story about which one is the first one you bought reminded me of like, I liked monograph books so much that I signed up. There used to be this, it was for architects, it was this service that they would give you three, they would give away three books. Yes, yes, yes. And then over the next year, you had to buy three other books. Yes, I got, I, I got into that too. Yeah, I did that a couple of times. Yeah. And you know, they were nice books. They were, they were nice books. They were surprisingly yeah. good books. I still have, uh, I'm pretty sure, all of the, all of those. I remember the first one I had was a uh, a book by um, about Frank Gehry's Bill Bao. Yeah. Oh, and I love that book because all the sketches from his initial thing and, and it talked about the ideas that he had behind this building, you know. Yeah. Um, well, it's nice you mentioned Frank Gehry because if, if our listeners are not familiar, you know, he starts every project with a a sketch that is almost undecipherable. Exactly. It's just like a, you wouldn't know anybody; it'd be a scribble, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And did you did you uh, catch that in the in the Michael Graves article? It seemed like he did just a little jab. I mean, mm-hmm. just a little jab at Frank Gehry. Did you catch that? I did catch it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I, like, you know, that's it's typical Michael Graves. I, yeah. I've spoken a little bit before about, like, I respect Michael Graves. I was not a fan of his architecture yeah. and, and some of his other stuff, <laughs> necessarily. Yeah, but, yeah. And I'm not a fan of him, his products. They were just terrible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, his products were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what, what, I mean, I guess... To sort of wrap all this around, because it's funny again, we were talking about the monograph, everything. Like I have such a love for this analog part of it that I even in my photography I started doing little magazines, little zines mm-hmm. of photos for different cities and whatnot. Um, so I think that's for me. That's something that I'm not gonna go away from. And unfortunately, you're gonna have to put up with more books. And <laughs> <laughs> but but self publishing. Yeah, yeah, and that's I have a great thing actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I by just, the way. Uh, Get small boxes for those books. Oh yeah, they absolutely. Get, they get heavy yeah, fast. I was, I was telling her that. You gotta, you uh, yeah, I think, trust me. I I, I, yeah. I did the mistake of putting it in a really big box. Yeah, the 20, I saw you pulled up. Um, uh, yeah, one of the things that I wanted to say, like before we we end this 
awesome conversation about analog and drawing. Like I, the three of us, I think we need to like thank uh, one person, you know, like, that I have in mind, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Peter Magyar. Yes. Uh, because yeah. he's definitely someone who uh, instilled in us the the love for drawing. Yeah. I mean, he was, he is definitely he's he's been an inspiration for mm -hmm. for the three of us so if you guys want to talk about him a little bit more i mean it would be amazing yeah but. no absolutely yeah. i think he just published another book didn't he no you know i'm not sure enough. So. He, was... he will post stuff on yeah. on facebook yeah. of yes. his drawings have you like, seen the the the, the it's a drawings. video of him doing his hand drawing for those that were, i mean a lot of people aren't going to know this but uh dr peter magier was the dean of the school of architecture when we were all in architecture school at, at florida atlantic university um, he's originally from Hungary. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that's you know he's from a Bauhaus um, scholar. School, you could call it. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's where his uh, love and back and background comes yeah. from drawing, right? I think we've put his book away that we had over here somewhere. Yeah, because I packed but, it. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I th I have his thought palaces. Is that yes, that's, yes, the, that's the, one the one I'm thinking about the yeah. thought palaces. And you know, I used to joke with Dr. Megger because. You know, I had a camera. I always had a camera, so I used to go take pictures of stuff, and I used to joke with him that he didn't need a camera. His, his hand drawings were his camera. Yes. And I, I used to joke that he actually would get his his image faster than me because I would still have to go get it developed or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he was he's a big influence in as far as the hand drawings because his hand drawings are just amazing. People should look him up. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful watching him draw. You know, when yeah. we had a class with, with Magyar, he, uh, he drew everything, and... Every line was deliberate, intentional, and well executed. Mm -hmm. He never went back and erased a line. He never scribbled mm -hmm. over a line. Every line was 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 perfect. Yeah, so I'm gonna write down yeah, here so that I gotta do a link to. Yeah, and currently story. he he's at the Kansas State University, and he actually has I think a summer program for um drawing specifically. I know a friend of mine from uh, Buffalo, New York, like out of nowhere, just noticed that he went over there and and. And we took a class at Kansas State, and it was, yeah, it was with Dr. Magyar, and I was really happy that he was able to find him. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. All right, cool. cool. Well, I mean, I think this has been a good discussion. Um, I think what I take away from it is that I, I guess there are many reasons why we, we've all, everybody, and I'm saying we as in the three of us, I think our professions move away from the analog designing, but I think for me, I'm going to keep fighting to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and for me, it's it's indispensable. But uh, I have very few sketches that I have saved because, uh, you know, they're just, a, uh, unfortunately, mm -hmm. for me, they're a means to the end. And, you know, when the clock is ticking every day, the client has to have their 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 stuff. Right. So I, I maybe I'll, uh, I'll start thinking about saving them once in a while. And why don't we do this? Why don't we all, like, uh, maybe not, I mean, let's just say over the course of the next month or so, let's try and post in, or maybe in the page some sketch that we do. Sounds good. Right. Oh, Let's try that. Yeah, All right, I'm, I'm going to write that down so we have to do it. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, this has been a good conversation. Let's move on to our next segment, which is going to be the product of the week. So here's the product of the week. As always, let's put in the disclaimer: we have no affiliation with this company. They're not paying us to talk about the company. <laughs> we, you know, we do a search. One of us will find a product that we like, and we'll sort of put it on here to talk about. Uh, this week, you found this, Ray. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the foam card? Yeah, um, it's a it's an interesting product because it, it kind of touches up on some of the things that we have over the, uh, the course of previous episodes. Have kind of 
um, you know, explored slightly. And that is the idea of recycling uh, items at home so you mm-hmm. don't have to throw anything away. Want to be nice to reuse the products that are already in your house to either repair products or to make new products. So um, this is not that exactly. However, it is a very interesting in-between step. And uh, what it is, it's a plastic card, and it's about the size of a credit card or a business card that you can, and it's made of a biodegradable uh, plastic that uh, you can heat up in a, in a cup of hot water, and the, the hot water basically activates it. And uh, uh, it lets you, it goes from a very hard card into a, a pliable, moldable plastic. And you have, you know, a little bit of time, you don't have... It's not ours. We have a little bit of time to mold it into whatever shape you want. And if you get it hot enough, if you get it very, very hot, you can actually use it to bond uh, broken plastic pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I like is that it basically is a plastics repair kit that you can have in your wallet or your purse or in your pocket uh, for the everyday things around mm-hmm. your house. Uh, so it's an interesting product in that, that regard. And um, being uh, based from bioplastics, it's non-toxic. So if you have to repair a toy or, or what have you, you don't have to worry about uh, children coming in contact with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, maybe it's not the perfect solution, but it's a very powerful first step mm-hmm. uh, to. And I think Claudia is the one that pointed out being able to just repair your own things at home and remake your own parts. I think it's an interesting in-between point. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? Well, it definitely creates less waste, which is great. And and that's what I like about it. I, I like the fact that when you do, um, it seems that when, when, it, when it's in pliable form or, or malleable form after you heat it, you can cut cut it into different shapes. Mm-hmm. I really yes. like that. I really like mm-hmm. that, that, that the versatility um, that you have. Like you can actually cut it, you know, like with, a, with scissors and everything else. So um, I also like the fact that you can travel with it anywhere. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can put it in your purse, like you said, and then you can... Um, specifically in your car, there are a lot of times that in your car you may need you you know you may need things too, mm-hmm. like um, a cracked dashboard or what have you. Yeah, yeah. and even in you know a small apartment or you know like if you're if you're a student and you live in a dorm too, um, so and even just uh, like if there's a if there's a, an issue with security or something like that, I mean there's just so many uses for your for your glasses even mm-hmm. like a, a tiny little piece you can cut, mm-hmm. uh, so it's yeah. really cool. Uh, I had questions about the 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 cost of it a little bit and also it's i'm also like the fact that it's um it's a uk product yeah yeah and i, I did some research because it is kind of it's, you have to do a little digging for it but it is it's, so for three of them you can get it for six dollars mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. right now most of the ordering is happening through indiegogo they do say that there's different companies that are carrying their the product and you can buy it through them as well um but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's a great product. It's funny because the thing you mentioned that you know it is a biodegradable plastic product because this is the sort of thing that like you know, forty years ago you would have seen it, you would have been like that's radioactive, <laughs> one yeah. <way> or another, <laughs> and you would have been afraid to use it. But yeah. I think the fact that it, it's great, and I love some of the uses that they showed, where like you know they used it as a cover for the for the mat knife, or yes. you know they made a screwdriver out of it, they even made a little ratchet out of it. Um, and this, you know, I think one of the Indiegogo uh, rewards that you can get is somebody took a bunch of them, scroll down there, and you can get like oh, the a, vessel. Yeah, the vessel that they made for her, like yeah. a, a special vessel that you can make. So you can even use this for art, you best. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, so that, what I, I think is very cool. 
Yeah, and, and would be interesting is like obviously this is mm. the first step, but imagine if most of the plastic things in your house are made this way. Right. You know, you just, uh, th- th- you know, they would all be able to be used to repair other things if mm-hmm. it's all the same kind of plastic. Right. So it's an interesting first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, inter- I, mean, I think we, last week we talked about, you know, pl- uh, we were talking about the toys or whatever and playing with Lego. Like I could definitely see giving this to a kid and saying, you know, make this part of your toys. Yeah. You, you can shape you know, weapons for them, for your action figures or whatever. You could make furniture for them or whatever it is. You know, you, there's different things you can do with it. And I would have loved this as a kid. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because I, I was looking at this as a product, but yeah, I can see that as an actual toy. I mean, it is without form, uh, completely up to the imagination of, of anybody using it. Yeah. yeah very yeah. interesting. Right, cool. Very cool product. Yeah. I like it. So, so that's the form card. And I believe it's uh, formcard.com or .co. What was the website? It's at the bottom. I saw that. Mm. Yes, formcard.co. Co, yeah. Formcard.co. So, yeah, check it out and uh, order a few of you. See I've seen a similar product that was made out of, um, uh, man, and it was on Shark Tank, but it was a, uh, it wasn't. A tape. Yeah, it was a tape, but the tape it was, was like made. Masking tape it was kind of like a masking tape. You would soak it as well. But it wasn't quite like this. You couldn't reshape it again. It wasn't as portable. It was like a little roll. Uh, and yeah, I forget what it was based out of, but it was definitely not as useful as this thing is. Mm-hmm. So this cool. is very cool. Yeah, it'll be nice to see what happens in five years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, well, let's go to the, that's, that's the product of the week. Let's go to the next segment. Uh, what are we working on? What are we seeing? What are we reading? Working on what are we seeing? What are we doing? Who wants to go first? I'll I'll start really quick because I've been very busy with the move (laughs) these past two weeks. But um, so I a little follow up on the solar um for all bill that I have been working on. Uh, We have a testimony this coming Monday uh, with the DC Washington DC Council, which is pretty cool. But one of the cool things that I found was I did research on solar jobs. And there's a really cool website. It's called solarstates.org. And if you go there, um, you can check the, you can look at by state the data from the solar industry. It's actually a survey. Uh, it's done by the Solar Foundation. And it's a national census of solar jobs and workforce development per state. And um, it ranks states uh, based on not only their um, solar uh, policies and uh, their their goals that they've set, but also how those policies have actually turned out or churned out jobs. And it's really interesting because DC is, is highly, you know, it's hmm. top 10, is, it's ranked number six actually, but in terms of jobs is number 33. And in terms of equity and um, hmm. the demography, like the, if you look at the, demo- the demographics of how those jobs are being um, uh Display, you know, are, are being shared throughout the city, it's really bad. You, you see how there's uh, a lot of equity issues, which was really good that the, this data is available. It's available from 2010 to 2015, and and I'm really happy that solarstates.org has this data available. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah so I've been working on this stuff, yeah. Uh, I'm going to put a link up. I just wrote it down here to put a link up of, of the website. Cool. How about you, Ray? Yeah, what about you, Ray? Uh, well, as you know, I'm always working on something, and um, lately on my on my YouTube channel, I've gotten a lot of interest in some of the uh, woodworking I do. 
which is a departure from the day job. You know, the mm-hmm. day job is all metal and very precise. And so in my spare time, I get to do some, some woodworking, which is more organic and, and free flowing and mm-hmm. no particular dimensions required. Okay. So I'm doing a, 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 what I think is an interesting video series of, uh, of making a, a wooden bowl from a, a chunk of raw wood. And it's going to be, I'm going to release a video a day, every day for 10 days. Mm-hmm. And, That's uh, cool. Yeah, this is going to be about, I think the videos are about five or so minutes long. They're not very long, uh, but it will show you a raw log and then uh, all the steps. Normally, I edit all those videos down to three minutes, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, there's been some interest in seeing how it, how it is in real time hmm. uh, because when I edit it down, it looks like it's very easy. Mm-hmm. So when you look at it in real time and you get to see how the, uh, the wood fights back a little bit, I think it's a little bit more interesting. And uh, I released the first one today, and it's received a thousand views uh, today alone. Wow, nice. So it seems that there's some interest in it. Cool, well, very cool. Yeah, I, I saw. I didn't. I didn't see the one today, but I feel like a, like on Friday I saw a video you had put up about a bowl as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the cherry bowl. Yeah, I think that's right. The cherry bowl, the one I saw. Yeah. What I like about what you're doing is that um, not only are you showcasing the the what you're making, right? I mean, you know, these the, the bowls, you're, what you're hand, making by hand and the process and the machines and everything else, but you're also showing content, how you are, you're also developing content. So how um, any any designer, manufacturer, maker, whoever, the you know, creative person can actually start using to using what they do to develop content mm-hmm. on, on social media. And I think it's really cool because you're you're showing that. I mean, doing me doing it in ten days, it's exactly developing content in a quick way, and really providing that content to your audience, yeah. and how important that is. Well, I will tell you what's interesting is, uh, as you know, I've been making stuff for a long time, and you guys have been to my shop before. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's not really that interesting because I do it all the time. But I ended up finding out that uh, what I do is really not that common, and and a lot of people find it interesting, even if it's not something they're going to do themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there is an interest in in seeing handmade work, and that kind of ties back to one of the news articles uh, we, mm-hmm. we, we exactly. covered. You know why handmade matters. Uh, you know everything is made by hand. You can see uh, because I don't hide anything. You can mm-hmm. see everything happening in the videos, and people are really more interested in the process of how it's done more so than the than the end product. So um, it's kind of the opposite of, of the working environment. The working environment, my clients don't care how you do it. They just want mm-hmm. the end product. Uh, but on my YouTube channel, my viewers are more interested in how it happens instead of what is being made. Well, and I'll tell you so this, because cool. I agree with you. I think people are interested in how it's made. Um, I know of a photographer that we started doing sort of these sort of hand drawings that he was doing in Photoshop. And all he started doing was recording how he starts going through his process of layers upon layers and changing this and you know and what he started to do is he sold the print for those drawings and every print came with a link to that youtube video of him doing it so the person could display there somebody asked him about it they could be like oh yeah go look at this video and you see how it was made and he found that that was like a big marketing point for it so it, you know, it could be something similar to you if you want to start selling these bowls and you have a video that shows how the bowl was made. That's going to sort of add it adds value for the person. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's funny you should say that because of all the years I've been I've been doing this since I was sixteen. Mm-hmm. I have never sold a single bowl that I've made. I've always either given them away or or given them to family or have but never sold a single one. 
Have you ever put one up for sale, though? I've never even tried selling well, one. Well, then you can't sell something that's not for sale. <laughs> well, you know, somebody might say, hey, I like that. How much yeah. are you selling it for? That's, yes, that's true. That's one of a kind. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. Good, good, good. Um, as far as me, since we're moving, I haven't been able to work on anything physical. Anything. What I have done is I've done some stuff for the show. Um, so now you can listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. I've, I've set it up so it automatically uploads there. Oh, as well is, as... What is that, Stitcher? Stitcher Radio is sort of like another, it's, you know, not everybody buys into the Apple thing, even though we're on iTunes. Yeah, um, I don't buy into either. Right, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't do that. There's other uh, other websites out there that collect the RSS feeds for podcasts, and you can listen to them through there, like SoundCloud. So Stitcher Radio is another one that's very popular, and you have to submit your show and then get approved to be on Stitcher Radio, and then other people can find you that way. So Stitcher Radio is a very popular um radio if you will online and we got approval for it we got approval for it oh, so nice. now we're on stitcher radio as well as cool. google play which is oh, cool. uh, 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 i guess it's a service that's launching still um but it's also it's similar to itunes or stitcher so the, radio as well. the google platform right exactly through their the app platform. system which is pretty big yeah. right so it puts us out there to for more people to be able to listen so i've been working on that trying to get the the show on as many platforms as possible so people have more options to listen they don't have to be forced to listen to itunes or yeah. just soundcloud cool and also other countries too that use all this exactly yeah, yeah other countries use other stuff you know yeah so excellent very cool so now we've got that to look forward for too and you know if people want to write in and see how they found us that'd be great um the website though the email address is still made podcast at gmail.com yeah, give feedback too. Like I mean, yeah. we've, we've heard feedback from a couple of our friends, and mm-hmm. you know that's been great because that that tells us you know what's working, what's not working, how yeah. we can bet, and all the bad stuff goes to Ray, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be more than happy to bet all the angry letters. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, good. That's so that's, my specialty. This is a good place to end the show then, because we've yeah. we've talked about everything we had to cover. Um, let everybody know how they can find you as always, Claudia. At the City Colleges on Twitter and thecitycolleges.com Ray's going to have a Twitter account next week when he's here in D.C. Yeah, we'll be doing the show together next week. Yeah, yeah, we're all going to be in the same room. Yeah. So, And we'll be going to get a Twitter account for Ray then. Until then, the name of the the name of the Facebook group is Homemade Lathe, right? Yep. Yeah, that's for if anybody's interested in how, if they're interested in turning how to make a lathe themselves, mm-hmm. uh, that whole group is just for that purpose so people can learn how to put it all together. Yeah, there's a lot of support there, right, for people that are just starting. Absolutely, yes. I uh, I take a look at all the posts, and I I, I pretty much uh, uh, if if a question goes unanswered, uh, I make sure that that there's an answer somewhere. So I'll either if I don't know it, I will research it, and I will uh, never leave anybody hanging. I try to make sure everybody can get their projects moving forward. Very cool, very cool. And then there's also the YouTube channel, which we link to every every week. Um, you can find me on, at City Aperture on Twitter, and the website is the same name. Um, and that's pretty much it. So I think we're going to call it a day for the show. Yeah. Great. Show number seven. Show number seven. Yeah. E7. All right. Yeah. Cool. Great. It's good talking to you guys again, like always. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks a lot.